You know, I, I still struggle, but I'm saved by God's grace. And listen, I'm being changed by God's grace every day. Some of the struggles that I had 10 years ago, I really don't have anymore. And some of the struggles I have today, I can't wait for 10 years because they're going to be gone. Voice of Max Lucado opening this week's edition of First Person. Welcome, everyone. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Today, we'll meet this prolific, award-winning author who touches hearts deeply with his words. I'm glad you've tuned in today for First Person. We're here each week at this time, introducing you to people who tell us their story. Some of the names you'll recognize and some you won't, but you'll always hear how God has directed their steps. We have a companion website which can be of great help to you in providing additional information to what you hear in this program. It's firstpersoninterview.com. When you go online, you'll be able to follow links to today's guests, as well as see the schedule of upcoming conversations and listen to any past interview, all at firstpersoninterview.com. Max Lucado is a craftsman. He uses words to build beautiful books that never fail to inspire us and cause us to want to know more about Jesus, who is the hero of all his stories. I often narrate Max's books as audiobooks, and after reading his latest titled Grace, I knew it was time to ask him to join us on First Person and tell how he first came to Jesus Christ. Well, thanks for letting me have the opportunity. It's a story I love to tell. Um, the, uh, the, 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 work of Christ in my life uh, really came in, in somewhat in, in two phases. As a, as a youngster, at the age of 10, uh, my parents took me to church and, and, and uh, exposed me to the teachings of the Bible. And uh, on, a, on a particular Bible class, Wednesday night, I can really remember a, a teacher explaining, of all things, the book of Romans to a bunch of 10-year-olds. I don't know what's crazier, that he was trying to explain it to us or we were we were understanding it, because it, it, it made sense to me. I thought, well, you know, I want to go to heaven, and that's where Jesus is, because I want, since he's there, that's where I want to be. There must be a Holy Spirit if that happened, huh? Uh, yeah, that's right. And so I just, I trusted it, trusted him, trusted the message. The following Sunday, uh, my, my father took me up, and I was baptized, and and so I, that that was really the beginning. But what happened though is I fell into a you know a, a bad crowd when I was in high school. Uh, our, our town was a very small town. The church was a very small church. I didn't have any Christian friends, and for whatever reasons, I, I just did not walk the walk uh, from about the age of fifteen till about the age of twenty. But by then, I was in college, and uh, I had made some really good friends. And one of my best friends ever, college roommate Steve Green, would wake me up every Sunday and ask me to go to church. Most of the times I had a hang- hangover, and did, and, and yet oftentimes I would still go out of guilt or obligation and uh, heard the wonderful preaching of, of a man who's still a friend to this day. Uh, and uh, little by little I moved down to the front of the church and was sitting on the front row, and uh, by the spring of, of my uh, sophomore year in college, I was 20 years old. I said, you know what, I've been away too long, and I came back. And and so uh, I, I kind of like to say my Christian life had two births. You know, I had that beginning at the age of 10, and then 10 years later, uh, I began trying to be a disciple. I have heard you tell that story of uh, the, uh, the the college years and your roommate, Steve Green, not to be confused with the singer Steve Green, by the way. Right. But I have heard you tell that in, in a couple of your books, and it, it's kind of hard to imagine that Max Lucado— that we know for all this terrific writing and all these, you know, great insights from God's Word, ever had that kind of experience? Well, 
It, that's the truth. <laughs> you know, I had I had a uh, I've, I, it, it's a it's not a um, casual thought to me to to think where I would be without Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, I was headed I was headed toward really disaster. I could drink six beers and not feel it. Uh, I, I knew every bar in the little West Texas town where I was going to college. I I was a carouser. I was a troublemaker. Uh, I had police chasing me a couple of times. You know, I I just think I would have let. I probably would have done all right in some business somewhere. You know, I've always had a way with talking to people. But I just think I I don't. I, who knows how many marriages I would have gone through, and how many rehab clinics I would have been in by now. That's a good um, exercise, isn't it? It is. It is. And you know, radio had a had a had a part in in my coming back to Christ. Uh, about three months before I came back to Christ, when I was twenty years old, I was home working uh, in the oil fields over Christmas break, and I had a job driving a pickup truck making deliveries out in the West Texas oil field. And this pickup truck could pick up one radio station, and it just happened to be a Christian radio station. <laughs> just happened. <laughs> and uh, and and the Lord was working on my heart. And if I wanted to listen to anything other than the wheels uh, out on the, you know, I mean, we're talking way out in West Texas. If I wanted to listen to anything other than the road, I had to listen to that radio station. <laughs> I couldn't take you to the find the church. I, I don't know the man's name, but he there's some preacher just just explained the gospel in a 20 minute message and uh it it got a hold of me and uh I, I pulled over to the side of a dirt road and I bowed my head and I said Lord I'm back and I'm sorry and I I, I came home uh so you know it was just the power of the message at the right time in the right heart you know uh, I know you have a lot of uh readers who read every word that you write Max and uh, I I have to say that I'm one who does read every word because it's been my <laughs> privilege to put some of your books on tape for audiobooks but I have been moved to tears in the studio many, many times reading the stories. And particularly, you mentioned the oil fields. You know, you you sharing those experiences growing up and the lessons of grace and all that you learned in those those times. Those are those are very powerful. We we you know that's how I, th- I think all of our lives are walking parables, aren't they? Uh, different illustrations in our life come through as we we think back and see. God's faithfulness and how he, he took care of us and watched over us. And uh, in my life, is no exception to that. Uh, you know, as an adult, I've got stories of, of God coming out and reaching out to me. Even in the ministry, I, I'd get off track uh, and come back and, uh, you know, just, just one occasion after another. Uh, that that that's I think that's why I treasure grace so much, mm-hmm. because I believe, I see that grace is, is God's un unrelenting commitment, his relentless commitment to to rescue us and to redeem us and to restore us into the way we were uh, intended to be. Yeah, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, but you do write about this in your book. I think it's in the Grace book, isn't it? The the struggle you had thinking, well, maybe I could go back and have a beer once in a while. Yeah. Maybe maybe that would be okay. And and the lesson that you learned from that. Yeah, alcoholism reared its ugly head again some twenty years later. You know, when I was uh, twenty. And I, and I returned to Christ. I decided I'm not going to drink anymore. Uh, I'd never have really made a big deal out of uh, if somebody wants to have a drink every so often. That's not a big test of discipleship to me. But in my life, as a as a family uh, member of a family that has battled alcoholism, uh, then it just was very clear to me that it was not a wise thing for me to drink. And so I did not for many, many years. Uh, in my early 40s, 
uh, I began to pick up the habit of drinking a beer every so often. And uh, uh, yet it wasn't the alcohol, Wayne, that bothered me. It was the pretense. Mm -hmm. It was my hypocrisy that bothered me. Uh, I didn't want anybody to know about it. I kept it a secret. Uh, And so I became that person in the convenience store parking lot who was sipping a a beer out of a brown paper bag. And uh, it was the cover-up, you know, uh, that that I was just trying to, you know, be one person in public and another person in private. And uh, I felt a real experience of conviction with the Holy Spirit and, and had to work that through. In, in a time of confession and, and apology to my church and to the elders. Uh, but the Lord's grace was there to receive me yet again. Well, I so appreciate you being so open about that because, uh, you know, that particular issue may not be uh, the issue that uh, that someone listening is struggling with, but there's other, other secret sins, so to speak, that's there that we're afraid to talk about, afraid to get out in the open and, and afraid to deal with. And, and your example, I think, teaches us how to do that. Well, secrecy is the tool of the devil, right? If he can keep us uh, all thinking that uh, nobody could relate or they'd reject me if they knew, and we think we have to keep things secret, uh, that takes us right into the world of darkness. God operates in the world of light, and when we can be honest, when we can move the, uh, you know, take the take the mask off and remove the pretense, that's where the real freedom comes. And uh, when I share this story about you know, about my hypocrisy, a lot of times people will come up and say, thank you. So I was surprised how vulnerable you are. My response to that is I don't want to be, uh, it's a hassle to try to cover, cover up your life. <laughs> yeah. It's a hassle. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? It takes a lot of work and a lot of energy. It's a lot more fun just to be open and say, hey, you know, I, I still struggle, but I'm saved by God's grace. And listen, I'm being changed by God's grace every day, every day. Some of the struggles that I had 10 years ago, I really don't have anymore. And some of the struggles I have today, I can't wait for 10 years because they're going to be gone. Yeah. And we shouldn't put people on pedestals. I, I know that you uh, see this all the time. Anyone in your uh, position, you know, a well-known writer sees this happening and it's just not happening. It's just not true. It shouldn't be. Yeah. And and we in these positions shouldn't let people put us on pedestals, right? <laughs> Good, yeah, because we know we, our hearts, don't we? Absolutely, we need to do all we can to to get down off the. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's better to climb down off the high horse than to get knocked <laughs> off it, right? <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Hey, quick question about writing before we take a break. Um, how do you keep all the stories straight? And I mean, how do you? Do you have this giant Rolodex, or uh, is it a computer file? How do you do that, Max? I'm always on the hunt for a good story. I love finding a good story. And so I have a big bin, a big plastic bin in my office uh, where I throw newspaper clippings. And every four or five months, I go through looking at these stories. Some of these stories I've had for, I promise, I've had them for 25 years. And I've never used them, but I keep thinking someday that story is going (laughs) to And and then sometimes I'll come across a story and I'll put it right to work. Uh, But I love a good story, and um, and so I'm always on the hunt for them. Yeah. Uh, If there was a story, a Walmart or Target, I'd spend every day there. (laughs) (laughs) And spend big money too. That's probably true. (laughs) Well, we sure appreciate your time today, and we'll continue talking with Max Lucado coming up on today's edition of First Person. You stay with us. 
Next time, a former prisoner of war talks to us about leadership. And to me, helping people understand that you cannot lead with honor without courage. And courage is leaning into the pain of your fear and doing what you know you ought to do even though you may be scared. Lee Ellis, a former Vietnam-era POW and the author of Lead with Honor, joins us next week for First Person. My guest today on First Person is author Max Lucado. I say author, but Max, you've been a pastor and teacher for a long time as well. Are you pastoring now? Yes, sir. I, um, I'm a teaching pastor at the same church I've been at since 1988. It's the Oak Hills Church in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, for 22 years, I was the senior pastor. And then about, uh, let's see, uh, 2008, we invited a friend of mine, Randy Frazee, to move to San Antonio from Chicago and take over as senior minister. And I moved into a teaching minister role. Basically, that means he does all the hard work, and I get to have all the fun. <laughs> I see how that works. Uh, yeah, you're, you're pretty smart. <laughs> no, it really is an effective way to do it. Uh, it truly well, is. It, it is. You know, our church is about 8,000 members, and that's a big community. And, and our staff is like 120. And so if you're trying to lead the staff, prepare a sermon every week, and then write a book every year, and then do all that comes with the book, I just felt like I was neglecting uh, something. And, and, and so I finally cried uncle. And the thing that I felt like I was least effective in was leading the staff. And so I went to the elders and I said, uh, what would you think if I stayed on to teach and then we bring on someone to lead the staff? And, uh, so that's, that's where we ended up. So is it all work and no play for Max Lucado? (laughs) No, I I love, I, I, uh, I, uh, I'm pretty serious about, uh, taking, uh, uh, breaks. Uh, and when I, when I take a break, I really take a break. We go on these two or three, three week vacations and I don't do anything but play. I really have fun, especially if our family's there. And, uh, about one, you know, once a week, I'll take a really good day off where I go play golf or go on a bike ride. Uh, I, I, I think that's important. Uh, I, I just do better. I'm a lot more productive. And of course, this is the way we're made, right? <laughs> Honor the Sabbath. Take take a day a week, and don't think that the world's going to fall apart if you take that day off. Here's the real test, though. Are you able to put the iPhone down or the BlackBerry and and really uh, get away? No, I'm not that great. <laughs> you know, when we go on vacations, uh, uh, I, I do pretty good. I'll put up that to, you know automatic response email, <laughs> and and I'll and I'll and I'll I'll avoid email for several days. Uh, but when I'm taking my day off, I still have the habit of pulling that phone out. Do you write every day? Not every day, but at least every week. And there are seasons I'm writing when it's uh, when I'm really in a writing phase of the year, a season of the year that I do write every day. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm always working on some book, uh, even when a new book comes out. I'm already working on the next one. So, and I like that. I like that. That's what I love to do. And and so, in a sense, I'm writing in my mind. But physically sitting at a desk and writing, uh, that's probably about three or four days a week. And what do you like to read? Well, you know, I read a lot of magazines. I really do. Uh, and people assume that as, 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 a, as an author, I probably read a lot of books from cover to cover. I read a lot of books, a lot of chapters out of different books. 
you know, somebody gives me a book and they say, hey, this is a good book, I like to look in the table of contents and pick out two or three chapters that really jump out at me. Uh, and then if I like those chapters, I'll read the whole book. But a lot of magazines, too. You know, the magazines are great because they condense the the news down to, you know, a couple of pages, and, and you can really walk away with some great thoughts. I want to spend a few minutes talking about something very, very important. And here we are on the eve of another presidential election. It's been a, a raucous campaign, if I can use that word. Been a lot of uh, a lot of things flying around in the media about this campaign. Uh, you have called uh, all of us to forty days of prayer. We're coming to the end of it now with the election coming up. But just talk about your heart in in making that call. Yeah, it's not too late, by the way, for somebody to join in on this. 40 days of prayer. Um, I think raucous is, uh, is a good word. There's something about elections. Uh, it, they just, I don't know, you might say they're they're the Petri dish for bad behavior. Yeah, brings they, out they the bring worst out, in us, yeah. They, they do, they do. I get emails from friends that are just tacky emails, you know, saying, you know, this person, this candidate did this, or this candidate did that. I'm saying, well, why are we having this conversation? <laughs> we get so intense. And I and I understand why, because there is so much at stake. There is so much at stake, and uh, and and yet at the expense, uh, we we get intense often at the expense of good, healthy dialogue, and good reasoned conversations. So I, as as I've been thinking this through, I thought this year let's let's call the country to prayer, and so I crafted a very simple prayer uh, based on the phrase USA or the name USA. And I'm inviting people to every day pray, God, unite us, strengthen us, and then appoint and anoint our next president. And uh, if, if, if we could have thousands of people around the country offering this prayer every day, invoking the name of the Lord on this election, I just, I just have to believe that it's going to help uh, have us have a more peaceful time as a country in this very, very important decision. And how do we apply the lessons that you teach us about grace in your latest book? How do we apply that to our national life in this this campaign season? I think we should and can set the example in being gracious people. Uh, you know, the, the, the picture of Jesus as he was on the earth, he was the picture of grace. Uh, he uh, was able to disagree with people agreeably. Uh, the story of you know Zacchaeus, or the story of Matthew the tax collector, or even the story of Peter who would deny him. These were people he did not approve of their behavior, but after they were with him for a period of time, they were different people. And I think when, especially we Christians, get involved in the political arena and we act as if we're not Christians, uh, we take on the same kind of poison viatribe that that people do that don't adhere to the teachings of Christ, we're really taking a step backwards. So let's carry the grace into our conversations. Try to agree, uh, disagree agreeably with people. John says Jesus was full of grace and truth. You can't ignore one uh, at the expense of the other. Absolutely. And there is a way. There, you know, we all know people who do this successfully, uh, who are in uh, major roles and leadership roles, uh, who have uh, maintained a spirit of grace. One of my heroes is Ken Starr. He's currently the president of, of Baylor University, but we all remember him as a special prosecutor back in the in the Clinton years, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
you talk about a picture of a man of grace. Uh, he never spoke spitefully of the president. Uh, he was able to, at least in every interview that I ever saw, he didn't get defensive. Uh, he was clear in his convictions. He was kind in all of his conversations. He was just the picture of grace. And even if you didn't agree with him, people respected him. And, and that, I think that's the, the Christ-like leadership that, that the country needs. Uh, he took a stand for what he believed in, and, uh, and, and yet did so with a gracious heart. Let's apply that same lesson as we look around the world. Now, you have traveled a great deal. You were a missionary yourself at one point in Brazil. Um, but thinking particularly of the Muslim world and, and all that's going on in the Middle East and all the turmoil, what's, what's the grace lesson? Well, the grace lesson is, number one, let's realize that the Christian message uh, is absolutely, absolutely unique in the history of the world. Our, our gospel says, God loves you, God accepts you, now go out and do good things. Uh, every other religion says, go out and do good things and hope God loves you and hope God accepts you. Hmm. Those two messages, I believe, create two different kinds of people. Legalism creates an angry person and a fearful person. Grace creates a gracious person. And uh, I believe that, that any form of legalism uh, creates people who are angry and creates people who are afraid and creates violence. Uh, and, and grace creates people who engender good, who create uh, gracious opportunities for conversations. So I think the application for us is let's, let's be people of grace. Let's be people of grace. We're not going to compromise our message. Uh, but nor are we going to behave like people who've never tasted grace. We're going to be people of grace in the midst of a very angry world. Good and important message for this season that we find ourselves in right now. You draw a lot of your stories from those growing up years uh, with your girls. And uh, Dina Lynn, you uh, have been such uh, faithful parents. Um, for the parent who's struggling just a bit right now in the midst of all that uh, growing up turmoil, uh, any advice? I think my advice would be it's worth whatever it takes to love those kids. You know, uh, the reason that I can uh, be happy right now about our family is because my wife and I made some, I think, tough decisions early on uh, to to really make our kids our priority. And, and we invested in the kids, and now we're harvesting from that investment. And uh, and we're really reaping the joy of, of three daughters who walk with the Lord. Uh, they're not perfect by any means, but, boy, they're great great girls. They're all in their 20s now. They're pursuing their own lives, and, and we're just thrilled. And there's not a volleyball game attended, piano recital attended. Uh, <laughs> I'd do it all again in a heartbeat. It was, it was the right decision. Max Lucado's latest book is titled Grace, More Than We Deserve, Greater Than We Imagine. My thanks to Max for joining us today on First Person, and I hope you'll join us in prayer for our nation leading up to November 6th. If you'd like to know more about Max and the books he writes, just visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. We've placed links there to follow. That's firstpersoninterview.com. Now, in addition to finding out more about today's guest, you can also listen to this or any past interview right there online and check out the schedule of upcoming guests and topics. I hope you'll join us at firstpersoninterview.com or facebook.com forward slash firstpersoninterview. When you join us next week, we'll observe Veterans Day by talking to a former POW from the war in Vietnam, Lee Ellis. Lee will describe his days as a prisoner of war and draw leadership lessons from his over five years of confinement at the Hanoi Hilton and other prison camps. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. 
Thanks for listening today and be sure to join us next week at the same time for First Person. 